Welcome to the Hands Up Feed Podcast. On this week's episode, it validates what we're doing and makes me want to push on even more about putting content out there because we're not just educating the general public. I mean, we're actually helping other farmers and farmers in third world countries. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Hands That Feed podcast. I am Nick Bradley, and we just wanted to bring you a short little intro to our guest today. Our guest is Mr. Matt Griggs and his lovely wife, Miss Kelly, and we wanted to talk to them because they are row crop farmers in Humboldt, Tennessee, in West Tennessee, and they do a lot of really cool research with UT Extension and a lot of work to make sure that they are being sustainable and the most efficient that a row crop farm can be. So we were extremely excited to have them on our podcast, and we hope that you guys are excited to listen to it and hopefully learn something. I know I learned a whole lot during this time, but I really do hope you guys enjoyed this episode. It meant a lot to me because this is the first row crop farmer that we've had on the podcast so far, and hopefully in the future we'll have many more. So this is not the first taste of row crop farming that you all will get. But once again, we just really hope that you all enjoy listening. And without further ado, here is our conversation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Hands That Feed podcast. Today, we are joined by a very, very special person. Mr. Matt Griggs is here with us from Griggs Farms in West Tennessee. Mr. Griggs, thank you so much for being here with us today, and we really look forward to this conversation. Glad to be here, and also got my wife, Kelly, right here with us, too. All right, awesome. Like I said, we are looking forward to this conversation today. I know that Nick and I have been really, really excited about this. And we really hope that our listeners get as much out of this as we're hoping today. We're going to talk a little bit about regenerative farming practices, sustainable farming practices, and how we can implement those on our own operations and just kind of what Mr. Griggs has. So we're just going to open up with Mr. Griggs, you kind of just telling us the story of your operation and what you do every single day and your kind of agriculture story. Well, actually, I'm a fifth generation farmer. My family has been here at this location ever since 1882. It started off when my great-great-grandfather moved a cotton gin about five miles up the road to this this present location. And right here, Mason Grove, where we're located at, was actually considered an up-and-coming town. It was actually, at, at the time, it was actually in Madison County. And then later on, Crockett County got cut out of several counties. And well, so we became located in Crockett County. But Actually, Mason Grove was like I said, it was an up and coming town until the railroads moved through a few years after that. And then a lot of the primary businesses moved about two miles down the road to Gadsden, where the railroad actually came through. So we were actually in an unincorporated town at, at one point. But anyway, we stayed in this location. You know, the cotton gin was our primary source of income. We did, you know, farming on the side too, like a lot of farmers at the time, you know cattle, hay, a few soybeans, grew a little bit of cotton, but the cotton gene was our primary source of income. And then about the 19, early 1970s, when my dad graduated college, he transitioned into full-time farming while my granddad still continued to ran, run the cotton gene. So that's how we started growing bigger in the row crop side with cotton, of course, being the primary commodity that we produced. And then I graduated college in, from UT Martin in 2002 and came back to work with him. 
he, I worked with him full-time for three years until he suddenly got ill right after planting in 2005. And from time of him getting ill to passing away was about a month. And it was also in 2005 that I met Kelly. We started, we started dating. And, you know, after my dad passed away in June, late June of 2005, I took over the, I took over operation of, of the farm. And then, you know, Kelly was kind of helping out here and there. She still had full-time employment in, in town. And, you know, it just, it, it kind of grew from there. I think it was what, 2010, Kelly left her, her job in town to come work full-time with, with me and I had wound up having to buy, buy my sister out of her part of the farm there 2009 or so. So, you know, we're now, you know, 100% owners of the farm and have been going since then. As far as our regenerative ag practices are, we started, we started experimenting with cover crops and other practices around 2010 or so. We've been reading a lot of, you know, information. The soil health was kind of becoming a key word about, about that time and starting to improve the soils. And I, I always had a real big interest in the soils, you know, going back to my time at UT Martin and the soil science classes I took under Dr. Bob Duck. And I knew we didn't have good soils because of years of monocropping, years of conventional tillage. We had lost a whole lot of topsoil. So I was looking for any, all the ways that I could quickly rejuvenate our soil to boost our productivity because typically uh, water holding capacity, the water availability during the summer is generally our most limiting factor. So I wanted to try and boost our soils up just as, as quickly as possible. And then that led to uh, experimenting with some tillage radishes, which we saw great promise from. Then that led to incorporating more multi-species blends and then high biomass, planting green, all that sort of stuff, and just trying to work through all the myriad of issues that we saw as we incorporated an additional practice into our farm, you know, problems that we'd have to solve to ensure that we didn't have any hiccups with any crop production. I always love to hear the the backgrounds of farms because it's it's something that I feel like everyone can connect to. It's a little bit of history, and it's just that family and tradition aspect of it. But Mr. Griggs, you've done a lot of research with Pioneer Seed. What sort of interest in research specifically? Like what was the the point that you, I want to do as much research in these areas as I possibly can? And just just sort of tell us what led you to that aspect of our industry. You know, starting off our work with being Pioneer, you know, it was, it was mainly due to due to finances. Whenever you put in a variety plot for, you know, any company, I mean, you're getting free seed and seed right now is, I mean, it, it, it was expensive 15 years ago and it's even more expensive today. So start, you know, it was getting, yes, getting the free seed. Pioneer actually paid us a, a fee to put in a plot in addition to the free seed. So, you know, it was really, it was lowering our, our cost, cost per acre quite a bit. You put in a corn plot right. and then a soybean plot and then a cotton plot. I mean, you're talking about several acres worth of seed right there. But it was really about, mm -hmm. it was 2014 really opened, opened my eyes. We had our best crop that I'd ever produced. I mean, we had some fantastic yields and the prices were still rel relatively high. You know, they were coming down from mm -hmm. the highs in 2012, but they were still relatively high. 
but that year, even with our record yields, we made some of the lowest profits that we'd made in quite some time. And that, you know, really got me thinking, well, why is that? We got high prices. We had high yields. Why didn't I make any more profit than, than what I did? And just got to looking at a lot of the stuff we were spending money on. You know, we were taking a lot of these ad companies' words to heart. You know, we, I apply this product. Well, it only costs me 4 or $5 an acre, but you'll give me an extra three to four bushels per acre. You know, that, that's that's a typical spill from, from any company. This product mm-hmm. only, is going to get you a little bit above what you spend on it. And then right. we got to thinking, you know, what, what if we're not actually making any profit off it? We're not making us any money. So th- that's really when we started turning our philosophy from doing everything we can to get as high yields as we can and high inputs to really looking critically at what we were spending on our crops and trying to only spend money that was pretty much guaranteed to give us a return on investment and then minimizing how much stuff we actually applied and rejuvenating our souls to where they would apply a lot of the stuff that all these products claim to apply, but it would basically do it for free and do it in a sustainable way. So, I mean, we, we quit spending a lot of money on a lot of these edge events, extra products, foliar fertilizers, you know, all this stuff that by themselves did not cost that much money. But when you add it all together, I mean, you might be spending another 40, 50, $60 an acre plus on your crops. We started deciding that we're not going to apply any product on our farm unless we personally test it ourselves and we can see a return on investment. And now our, you know, because of our prominence on social media, we, you know, all went along, we've got people stopping in, Hey, won't you try this product? But we think it'll help you out. They don't know my fields. They don't really know, know our practices. They don't really, they don't know what my most limiting factor is. They don't know if it's going to make me a yield, but it's a standard company spiel that, Hey, it can make you money. So my reply to them Mm -hmm. is I'll be glad to test your product, but you know, give me a, give, give me enough product for, you know, a couple acres and I'll put in a replicated plot. Then if it works, if it makes me yield, then I'll look at it further. Just, just continuing on the topic of your research, what, what are some of the things that you found and maybe like, what's one of your favorite projects that might've even led to a new practice you use on your farm? There's been, there's been several that I really didn't have much faith in, but I just did it just to, just, just to try it out. And surprisingly, it made me more profit than anything else I've, I've tested. And then, you know, there's also been other projects that we've had going on. I have kind of a, a hypothesis and a theory in my mind about what I should see. And then in reality, that that's actually not what I did see, but probably the most successful product that we've ever tested is when we first started cover cropping crimson clover was part of our mix we never really did see a lot out of the crimson clover because it wasn't nodulating we didn't have the correct species of of bacteria in the soil to help the crimson clover produce its own nitrogen so we had the pleasure of visiting dave brandt there quite a few years ago visiting his farm and i asked him about that problem and he gave me a product to recommend it's a product called micronoc made down in texas and anyway i tried on my crimson clover and all of a sudden my crimson clover started started producing nitrogen anyway i had a little bit left over one year and we were planting corn and i said i, I don't want stuff to go to waste I'll, I'll just try i'll put it on corn you know it does great on crimson clover i'll put it on corn to see what it does not really expecting anything about it 
Anyway, I put it right beside our UT and Pioneer variety trials. And when I got to the, and I didn't think anything about it at the, at the, the rest of the year. And anyway, we got done with our harvesting our Pioneer and UT plots and I saw a few more flags. And then I remembered, hey, I put in this Micronite trial. All right, well, we got time. We'll go ahead and harvest it. And, you know, we got scales on a grain buggy and we'll, uh, we'll get the data. And that plot right there was the most opening I've ever done. We replicated the if four times, treated and untreated. And we saw, I think it's an average of a 12 bushel per acre increase with the treated versus the untreated. The moisture was about a half a point drier. And it really opened my eyes like, okay, well, that's, that's a great e experiment. Doesn't mean I'm going to use it on all my corn acres next year, but I'll, I'll uh, duplicate the test again next year. Anyway, we did that four years in a row. And that product on our corn, not only did it never lose a trial, it never lost a side-by-side -side comparison. You know, we replicated it at least four to five times in each trial every year. And in each instance, the the strip with with it out yielded the strip strip next to it that did not have it mm. so uh, we started using it on our corn ground every single every single year across every acre i also tested it on soybeans wheat and cotton and but surprisingly it didn't add any yield on those crops but for whatever reason in our soils mm. with our practices on corn i mean it it really became a a valued product and you know at a cost of a little less than five dollars an acre i mean it was making us i mean the most guaranteed return on investment i've, I've ever seen and then wow. some of the then one of the other projects that we've done we've been doing this since 2015 was is our adaptive management plots where we're comparing no-till cover crops in a long-term environment and we've got permanent strips that we established in 2015 that's replicated four times we got four no-till plots randomly dispersed in the field. And then we've got four plots each of a summer and winter cover crop mix. And then another one with a summer cover crop mix, which we're thinking about transitioning that into a conventional tillage versus no-till versus no-till with high biomass cover crops. And we've seen some extremely promising stuff out of that, that, those plots. But then there's other things that we were kind of expecting that we haven't seen. You know, one thing we haven't been able to document is higher yield, which ultimately is the goal of, you know, using regenerative ag. For whatever reason, we have not been able to document higher yield. We have been able to document a greater water infiltration. So we've documented higher organic matter, a lot of other things. But unfortunately, we have not been able to document higher yield yet. But it's a, it's like I said, it's an ongoing project. I plan on keeping it going as long as I can farm just to study the long-term effects of no-till and then cover crops. And then if I decide to change, you know, throwing in conventional till and seeing just how fast our soils de degrade when you start applying conventional till to your farm. So we want to study, you know, how quickly soils can degrade after they've been built, built up by, you know, long-term no-till. Yes, sir. I can... I can tell you from off of our row crop operation that, and all of our farm and friends around here in Lincoln County, that conventional tillage and no, no till isn't as popular, but still as popular, but you can see a, a little bit of a shift happening with no till to convention tillage, which in some ways is, I don't know, because it is scary because we don't know how, how that soil degrades yet. If, if we were to go back to something like conventional tillage. But just as another question that I had was, 
if I wanted to get more into research with extension or with a seed company like Pioneer, what what would be the best way to go about that? Or or what would you have for a up and coming farmer that really wanted to enter themselves into research on their operation? What advice would you have for them? I mean, if you want to get involved with you know extension or one of the seed companies, it really shouldn't be that hard because I mean they're always seem to have a hard time finding enough people that's willing to put in a quality plot form. You know, with extension, mm -hmm. just contact your local university extension agent. Now, not all university extension agents are created equal. I mean, we're fortunate to be located in, in three counties that has some really great extension agents that are go-getters. You know, they're just not wanting to ride, ride the wave to retirement. You know, they're wanting to get out there and do a good job. So we're blessed. So if you're located in a, a county that has an extension agent that's just got his eyes on retirement, really doesn't want to get out in the field anymore and do do the work, it might might be a little bit harder. Seed companies, just contact your whatever representative for the company that you buy your seed from. Most likely, they would love to put a plot in on you. If you never put in a plot, you know, you can't just put in a plot any old place. You need to try and make sure it's in as good of a spot as possible. Not necessarily a, a high-yielding spot, but a very representative plot, that, a uniform plot for the area that you're going to be put it in to where they can get quality data off of it. Make it be known that, you know, you're just not doing it just to get the free seed or whatever. You actually care about the data off the plot to make sure it's going to be good data. That would probably be the be the best way. And then as far as products, you know, I always hate it when companies come to me with a product and say, hey, we just want you to split the field with. All right, we're in West Tennessee. For one thing, our fields are not uniform. They're not the same size. They're not the same same shape. If the, if the difference is between the treated untreated is great enough yeah you can probably see a difference just splitting the field but it's you know most of the stuff we're dealing with we we might only get two three four bushels per acre difference in it i mean you're just not going to see that by splitting the field there's too much variability in it you got to eliminate as to get good data you got to eliminate as many variables as possible and to do that you need to do a replicated plot preferably small scale with uniform soils that's going to give you good data and then not only do you have to put in that plot, we've got to have a way to measure that plot. Now, scales are becoming a, a lot more common on equipment, but if you're just starting out, you're probably working with older equipment, doesn't have scales on it. You know, you need a grain cart or a seed tender with scales on it, and you can put this stuff on aftermarket just like we did, but you need a way to measure the yield. You need a way to measure the area of your plots and to do it that way. If you're going to put in the effort to put in a plot, Go ahead and go all the way and do it the right way. Put in a replicated plot to where, and then have a way to, you know, measure the yield off of it. I mean, a lot of these seed companies, they'll provide you a way wagon if you give them a, enough enough notice, especially if you're putting in a variety trials form. You know, there, there's a lot of different ways you, you can go about it, but go about it in a scientific method. That way, any conclusions that you get off of it are valid, are valid conclusions and, take a lot of the emotion and a lot of the judgment out of determining whether a product is actually worth applying or not. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So obviously you are so focused on sustainability and a lot of your research kind of reflects that 
and um, you advertise that very well in the media with your YouTube channel and have even been featured on the History Channel as well as won numerous awards for your practices in in conservation. What are some of those practices that you utilize on your operation and why do you do them? And moreover, I mean, you even talked about earlier how you were a monocrop operation that was strictly conservation tillage and how you have transformed uh, your operation to implement more sustainable farming practices. So not only what are some of those practices, but what was that transition like into your regenerative agriculture practices? You know, what, what initially caused us to have to transition was we started no-tilling around 1998. At that time, our organic matter in our soils was about a half a percent. It's not a lot of topsoil. And then anyway, we transitioned to no-till. And then by the time I took over the farm in 2005, our organic matter had grown to about 1%, maybe one and a quarter percent, but it was kind of plateauing. When my dad passed away, I introduced wheat into our rotation. You know, wheat produces a lot of biomass. Then we saw the next five, six years or so, our organic matter levels increased up to about one and a half, topping out at around 2%, then kind of seemed to plateau. I knew that getting organic matter in the soil was key to sustainable production, long-term production, making the soil healthy to where it could provide a good environment for the seed, provide nutrition and, and so on. But there's been two, two key things in my short farming career that showed us that we needed to change the way that we were farming. One of them was the drought in 2007, the worst drought we'd had in 70, 80 years. Anyway, we wound up actually losing $100,000 that year. And at that time, we were about a, a thousand acre farm and I knew if we experienced another year like that year, you know, it was, it's only by the grace of God that we made it through that year and were able to put in another crop. So I knew that we needed to increase the water storage capacity of our soils, increase the water infiltration rate. And the best way to do that is building the organic matter in your soil. Then the second thing that happened to us was the, was these Roundup resistant pigweeds, Homer amaranth that started coming about. And we were quickly, we, we lost a lot of chemistry in just a few years that would work. And we were limited with very few options. So we knew we had to make a change for long-term no-till production. So we couldn't go back to tillage. That would defeat everything we'd worked for. So we had to find out, you know, different ways to control these, these pigweeds. And, you know, cover crops, we saw the weed suppression, amazing weed suppression out of cover crops, especially high biomass cover crops, that is just a, another tool in being able to control these pigweeds. And even still now, you know, 15 years later, pigweeds drive the majority of my management decisions. We're able to keep them under control. We practice zero tolerance. We don't let a single one go to seed all year long, but there's still a major thorn in our side, but cover crops is a big tool in, in helping to manage them. You drive by our fields, you don't see a mess of pigweeds come August and September out there. You don't, in fact, you'd be hard pressed to find one single one poking above the crop come that time. Yeah. I can talk from experience about those pigweed 
I can't tell you how many times dad has sent me out there with a backpack sprayer to spot spray them all over a 200 acre field. So I, I feel the pain. Yeah. Yeah, a backpack tough. sprayer, a, a hoe, a, a good pair of gloves to pull them up. I mean, we utilize, we, we do a lot of, lot of manual removal and just about every, just about every evening during the late summer, you know, I'm on the side by side, I'm riding around fields with the sole, with the sole purpose of seeing if I see one poking above the canopy and then we'll go get it. I mean, Kelly's gotten on to me for stopping at the side of the field on the way home from church and walking halfway out in the field to find one pigweed that I saw <laughs> driving by. So no, we used to train the kids to do it. Like the kids would, we'd drive by from church and, you know, Carter or Paige be like, pigweed. And we just can't stop, turn in and walk out and go get them because, you know, that's something we'll have to do later. So you might as well. <laughs> yeah. Paige, Paige told us the story one time she was on an FFA trip and they were riding the bus and they were driving by some fields and she said, look at all those pigweeds out there. And everybody's like, what, what are you talking? What's a pigweed? And then she got to tell them all about what she's been doing all summer long. Mm-hmm. It it was always pigweed in that volunteer corn in those cotton fields that we had to go get. A volunteer corn but, typically isn't in a, a problem for us, but yeah, it's it's definitely pigweed. I understand all too well. Right, right. So I I think you were also asking about you know what the transition was like, and I told you why we transitioned, but the actual transition in part, I don't know. It was. It was very, very eye-opening. You know, there was, at the time that we started, there was no book on it. There really wasn't a whole lot of resources on how to transition, what you would expect and, and all that, because myself and then a few other local farmers, we were all trying it for the first time. And, you know, all these headaches that popped up, you know, we, we had to solve them. And it, it was difficult. I made the mistake of, you know, what I advise everybody else not to do. I made the mistake in 2015. I jumped in planting green with both feet and corn wasn't a problem when we planted it. Soybeans wasn't a problem when we planted it. But when we planted cotton a couple of weeks later in May, the amount of biomass that we had accumulated was just mind blowing. And anyway, I pulled into the field with my planter thinking I could just plant it no-till like I'd always been doing. And within about 25 feet of my first pass, my planter locked up solid. I had vetch, rye, everything else wrapped around everything on the planter and locked it up tight. And the next four to five days was an absolute nightmare for us because we were trying, we were trying everything. We were taking stuff off the planter. We were putting stuff on the planter. We were adjusting this, adjusting that, and just absolutely nothing seemed to work. I think I drove Kelly crazy that, that first year. But anyway, about halfway through cotton planting, we spent five days and we planted maybe 200 out of our 500 acres, just getting nowhere, wouldn't getting seed in the ground, locking up stuff on the planter. But anyway, I, I called Dave Brandt because when we visited him, I saw that he had a roller crimper and he was actually a dealer for INJ roller crimpers. And anyway, he's located in Carroll, Ohio, just south of Columbus, Ohio. I called him up like, I, I need a roller crimper. Of course, there was, there was none to be found around here. People didn't know what a roller crimper was. So I called him up like eight o'clock that, that morning, like I need a roller crimper. Well, I've got a 20 foot one here in, here in stock. You welcome to it. Said I'm on my way, hooked up my 20 foot trailer and took off straight for Carroll, Ohio, got to his farm at 
think nine o'clock that night, him and his son loaded up on my trailer and I took, I took a back off for home, got home at like seven o'clock the next morning, unloaded thing off my trailer, hadn't had any sleep, hooked it up to a tractor and loaded it with water and went, went to cramping. And it really helped out a lot by knocking that mat down flat on the ground where I didn't have it wrapping up on shafts and, and other stuff. Still wasn't getting great seed to soil contact, but we were able to get our planter across the, across the rest, rest of the acres. But anyway, we had about a half of a stand on that cotton crop. You know, we actually wound up having to terminate about a hundred acres of it just because it wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't thick enough. And then after that, you know, that winter, I made other plans about some more things we were, we could try to try and improve our seed to soil contact, designed some solid road cleaners made out of scrap metal. They worked real well and just led a progression. Uh, each year, it seemed like we would encounter a different problem that we would have to solve. And, you know, it took us a solid three years to get our planting down to where we could get a pretty much a guaranteed stand i had to adjust my way of thinking realizing i'm not i'm not a no-till farmer anymore i'm planting into cover crops the, my way of thinking in when i was planting no-till is not going to work planting into 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 cover crops but here we are what like eight nine years later and now i've got a planter that can adapt to just about any kind of condition possible and we're, you know, we're, we're experiencing real good success planting green now. And we think it's really offering us a lot of yield benefits. I mean, well, like I said, I haven't been able to document the yield increases in our replicated adaptive management plots, but our overall on a large farm scale our, with the exception of corn last year, just due to the awful drought, we got trend line yields that are steadily that not only are they going up trend line but they're at the 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 curve is actually increasing we're we're doing some really really good stuff and a big part of it is due to soil health regenerative ag practices you talk about that transition and it can be hard for some people especially if they're on an operation when it's all they've ever known to do it this way so what advice would you give to a farmer maybe listening to this episode about how they can start implementing some of those practices if if that's something that they're interested in? Uh, the biggest thing is is to start off small. The last thing you want to do is have a train wreck on a large amount of acreage like, like I did. That's the one thing that I did that I advise everybody not to do. Yeah, I learned a whole lot in a hurry, but it was a pretty painful year seeing 500 acres of cotton look like crap. Start off small. If you never planted cover crops before, plant you one field of cover crops, single species. If you like that, then start introducing other species, you know, and then throughout the year, study what those cover crops are doing. Do you like the root system? Are they addressing the problems in your field? Do you need to bust that up compaction? Is that what they're doing? Or do you need a better weed control? You know, is it accomplishing that? And then you know, get your mix right. The cover crops that work well for you on your farm in your environment with your planting date behind the crops that you plant behind, make sure that each species is well adapted in doing what you want it to do. Then once you get that nailed down, then think about increasing your biomass and maybe not terminating it early when you do a normal burn down. Try to accumulate more biomass to boost your organic matter, increase your, your weed control. But on that part, don't necessarily do a field. When you're doing your burn down, leave a sprayer width in the middle of the field. Just leave it out. Don't spray it. Let it grow up. See what it does. 
and then try to plan into it. Most likely it won't go well, but you'll learn a lot. And then you can make adjustments for the year after that. And then where hopefully you can make a successful transition to getting all the benefits you want, but you won't necessarily have a train wreck across a large farm. And then the other thing you really need to change your way of thinking about is I know we all say we need to ignore what our neighbor's doing. If our neighbor's going to the field with his planter, that don't mean we need to hook up to our planter and go to the field also, which for me, I mean, that that's still a tough thing. When I see planters going up and down the road in March or early April, I'm like, I, I want to be planting too. But I don't necessarily need to be planting because how your cash crop seeds, how they react in a high biomass cover crop situation is likely going to be a lot different than what they'll erect with in a, a conventional till or no-till situation. If if it's if the plant conditions are marginal for a no-till farmer being cool and damp and everything, in a cover crop situation, the soils are going to be even colder and potentially wetter, which could mean a, not getting a, a stay in the first go around. You need to quit paying attention to other farmers in your area and what they're doing. You need to quit paying, don't pay attention to the calendar just because you've always planted corn on April 1st doesn't mean you need to keep on planting corn on April 1st. You need to make sure the, the conditions are right for planting and preferably you've got a good five-day forecast after, after that because cover crops will magnify any kind of environmental problems at planting that, you, that you're encountering, at least until you get your soils transitioned. The first I say the first two to three years after transitioning into cover crops is going to be the hardest because your soils haven't yet gotten a lot of the benefits of long-term cover cropping as far as soil structure and water infiltration and keeping them from having saturated soils and all that. So first two, two to three years really need to be very careful about the window that they the window that you plant in. I know a lot of these pieces of advice I'm most likely it's back up to the shop and start talking to my dad about these things. Crop we do on our farm is just double crop wheat where we just come in with soybeans behind it. But I've tried to talk to him about getting cover crops, like more in-depth cover crops, such as that clover and those and those mixed seeds and all that fun stuff. I don't think I've quite convinced him yet, but maybe I'll let him listen to this episode and, and, and he'll be convinced. Just look, if you're a good businessman, but... You know, him and I have completely different philosophies. Like, you know, he come from the 80s, 70s and 80s, and he saw the how hard agricultural was then, high interest rates, low yields and everything. And, you know, his philosophy was is, I mean, he absolutely wouldn't spend a penny unless he, I mean, absolutely had to. And it led to our farm. I mean, we were still making money. We we're still successful, but it led to our farm becoming behind the times. You know, he was one of the last to uh, pick up no-till. He was one of the last ones to update e equipment. You know, I don't think he ever would have invested in GPS and a lot of other stuff and, you know, saving money, which there's a lot of value in that. I, I don't like spending money myself either, but I need, I've also recognized that there's some instances that if you don't spend money, it's going to hurt your profitability later on. It might be a penalty you got to pay that year, you know, say updating a piece of equipment, but it'll actually make you more money long term if you stay mm -hmm. updated or you implement a practice. It's like with cover crops. You know, there was several years there. We spent money on, on seed and whatever, but 
you know, it was maybe two, three, four years later that we started recouping some of that money because we were getting the long-term benefits of it. So it's convincing an, an older generation. Well, not only an older generation, but, but family too, which, you know, family is, can be very difficult to, to deal with, especially if you've got someone that's older, that's been entrenched in what they've been doing, what they're doing works for them and has worked for them. So they really don't have any incentive to change. It can be a, a it can be a very difficult proposition, but you know, I'd say approach your dad's like, hey, give me a field, you know, give me 10 acres, 20 acres, whatever. Give me a field. G- give me a field that you're not happy with that you think can do better. Then go out there and identify what their problems are and then try and tailor your cover crop mix or whatever practice you're wanting to do to address those spe- address those spe- specific problems. Yeah, I'm definitely going to make you listen to this episode. Mr. Griggs, even just with this episode, you've shown how important it is for you to have media outreach. I mean, you have a wildly successful YouTube page. I mentioned earlier your appearance on the History Channel, even just your social media presence in general. Why is that public outreach so important to you and your family's operation? Kelly and I have had a lot of conversations about not only is our passion farming, our passion is is, is education and not 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 necessarily other farmers. I mean, if, if other farmers are interested in what we do, we love to sh- showcase it because we believe in our philosophies, we believe in our practices, and we think that there can be a lot of benefits to other farmers changing their practices, maybe to incorporate more of what we do. We think long term, it would definitely benefit them. If you're on Facebook or any other social media, I mean, you're you're inundated with like ads like you know glyphosate causes non-hodgkin lymphomas you know there's the media in general is focusing more on the left-wing aspects you know farmers are you know they're raping the planet they don't care about the animals that they produce they don't care about the soil the environment you know all they care about is the bottom line they're drenching their crops with pesticides you know that's that that's literally all we hear and what we want to do is, is educate the general public. You know, most of the general public is re, is what three times removed from from the farm. You know, they have mm-hmm. no idea where their food comes from, what's involved in producing it, and and all that kind of stuff. They just think that they go to the grocery store and they get food, and you know. And then we've also seen or, organic, you know, become a key buzzword. And you know, there's nothing wrong with organic if if that's what you want to buy or if that's what you want to produce. Fine, you're supplying a need to people who want to buy organic, but to mm-hmm. but to basically trash mainstream agriculture with your organic philosophy is is not true. I mean, organics are treated with pesticides too. They might be naturally occurring pesticides, but a lot of those pesticides are actually more dangerous than the synthetic pesticides that we apply as as traditional producers and there's just so much misinformation out there trying to form a narrative to the the public and you know the public's not involved i mean all they can i believe is what they see so we try to provide a an, i'm not gonna say an unbiased source of information but we try to provide a, a realistic source of information like hey this is what we do this is what we care about this is what we're passionate about and we're doing the best job we can Oh, we're not always successful, but we, you know, us and pretty much every farmer out there, we're not in it for the money. If we were, we 
we'd be doing something else. We're doing it because this is what we're called to do. This is what, what we believe in. And my audience with YouTube is a lot different than Kelly's audience. Kelly does Instagram and does TikTok and a, a few other forms of media. So we've got different target audiences and Kelly, while she also promotes soil health and our sustainable practices, she's also likes to show what, what women can actually do. You know, women aren't just farm wise, they can actually farm, farm themselves. Actually. So I started Instagram when the show aired and then I got up to like, I don't know, it was like 50 or 60,000 followers. And then realized that you had to like secure your Instagram and I lost everybody. <laughs> but now I've got close to 8,000, but those are 8,000 people. I go through every day and I make sure there's no bots following me, that they're actual people. My average story every day that people watch our train wreck is anywhere from three to 4,000 people. So, and my target audience is people that don't farm. And I have a lot of those because I'm from Chicago. So I have a lot of people that are like, oh, she's from the city. Like, I want to see what she does. Lots of people from Pakistan who farm cotton. And so they have a lot of cotton questions. In fact, today I'm just was on my phone talking to a father and son who have moved here from South Africa to farm. And they actually farm about an hour and a half up the road in Missouri. And they just are so immersed in what we're doing that he's asking so many questions. And I said, y'all are so close. You might as well just come down, like <laughs> come down and spend the day, you know, asking questions when we're done planting and done being crazy because they want to take back what we're doing here in America to South Africa. That's the whole reason they're coming over here. And I think that's just amazing that, you know, these people are seeing what we're doing and they're coming over here and then they want to talk to us to take it back to their countries. And mm -hmm. that's a huge thing for me. You get comments like that, you know, it, it validates what we're doing and makes me want to push mm -hmm. on even more about putting content out there mm -hmm. because we're not just educating the general public. I mean, we're actually helping other farmers and farmers in third world countries. Even. Mm -hmm. You know, it, that, that, that kind of stuff means the world to us. You know, and also too, is a lot of these third world countries, the government tells them what to plant, uh, specifically Germany. They're not allowed to pick what they want to plant. So when the government tells them you have to plant this, they're going to find a way to make the most profit out of that because the government is telling them, okay, this year you have to plant corn or this year you have to plant barley. So they will go to YouTube for American farmers to find out how they can get the most profitability out of the crop that the government is telling them what they have to plant. And then my big thing too, is I didn't grow up on a farm clearly. <laughs> and I want to show people that you can do whatever you want, as long as you put your mindset to it and you've got a good work ethic. I mean, I've been working since I was 14 years old. So, and a lot of this stipulation behind the farm wife thing here in the South, there's a huge generational gap. I'm still trying to help women like myself break that that gap because out in the Midwest, the North, the, it doesn't exist, but here in the South, it still exists. And I'm working with two companies to put together a kind of a women-based working women conference for people in the South, because I've been to some across this country that have been absolutely amazing for education. Plus finding women who do what you do. I've got friends that work for NRCS. I've got friends that work for the FSA. 
friends that do what I do. I have a really good friend who farms 5,000 acres. She farms 5,000 acres. She's the boss. She makes all the decisions. We are all in the same kind of community, but we have different tables. So trying to put this together in the South and getting funding for it, I really thought it was going to be a hard thing. It's not. I've got companies willing to throw money at me because they know it's a need. So it's a need because we don't have, we want more women in agriculture, but you know, what mm -hmm. if you're really great with technology? We need drone pilots now. We just need women to know that you don't have to be a farm wife and you don't have to be an agronomist because I've talked to, you know, we have an agronomist that's a woman and she's great. I love her. And she's like, it's kind of a stipulation in college. You're kind of told either you're going to go back and work on the farm, but you're going to be a wife and you're just going to have a town job and, or you can only be an agronomist. So we're trying to change that narrative and trying to change that gap that if you don't want to go to college and you want to farm, well, heck yeah, do it. I found girls. I say girls, cause we have a daughter who's 26 that I talked to. There's two of them. They're farming with their parents and they're just happy. And they've learned everything they could possibly learn on the farm instead of going to college. You don't have to go to college. You know, maybe you want to work for a farmer and run the farm one day. So it's just me being, I don't know, truthful and relatable to people. And that's who find me on, you know, the YouTube. They'll say most of the guys, well, most people who watch Matt's YouTube are men. So I don't get a lot of good, good comments, but some of the comments are, you know, it takes a lot to be married and work together, but yeah, I just want to show women or even younger women. You, there's no, it's not like a women's movement, but it, there should be no, there should be no gender. You know, if you want to be a farmer and you're a woman, you should be one. So it's just trying to change that narrative and let people know that you can do it. I mean, I'm from the North and I live in the South and I'm farming next to my husband you can do pretty much anything you put your mind to. And I love, I love the fact y'all brought up that the the main reason that you produce content and that you want to have a follow hate them. And I feel like, like that's the reason why me and Callie started this podcast and have this podcast is we wanted to reach farmers, production farmers, just consumers, just whoever we could reach with this information. So I greatly appreciate y'all being on this episode today. I know I've gotten a whole lot out of it. Just once again, I want to say thank you so much. I'm sure that our listeners will get so much out of this episode. And yeah, just thank y'all. Well, I'm, I'm glad to participate. I'm glad y'all asked me to be on here. It was a great hour-long conversation. And we can do anything to help y'all in the future. Y'all y'all, y'all just con contact us. All right. Yes, well, sir. thank you, guys. Thank you again so, so much. And alrighty, everyone, that was the end of our conversation. And once again, we just want to thank Mr. Griggs and his wife for joining us on our podcast today and just letting us know what things look like on a day-to-day -day farm. It's, it's really cool to be able to relate my experience on my family farm to someone else who's going through the same struggles every day, trying to get crops in the ground or trying to get everything sprayed in time before the big rain or whatever that may be. It's really cool to know that there are other people out there that are going through the same things, the same motions to try and feed everyone. And it's just really encouraging to me to be able to talk to other agriculturists 
And you don't have to live on a farm to be an agriculturalist. If you want to get involved in agriculture, start going to your local farmer's market. Start sharing posts about agriculture. When you see them on social media, share this podcast. Another way that you can get more involved in agriculture and learn more about it is you can go visit the Griggs family's channels on both YouTube and TikTok. All you have to do is go look up Griggs Family Farms or Griggs Farms in Tennessee and on either one of those platforms, and it should pop right up, and you can learn all sorts of new things about their operation there in West Tennessee and all the wonderful things that they're doing to put research out there for specific sustainability and efficiency measures for farming. But once again, we just want to thank you so much for joining us today, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hands at Feed podcast, and we hope that you'll tune in next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Hands at Feed podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and don't forget to rate and review our podcast and share with your friends. We'll see you next week.